1 Kings 19, the title is Hitting Rock Bottom. And uh, I want you to really take, open your hearts to listen to what God wants to say to you because we've been looking at the story of Elijah here uh, on Sunday mornings, you're a visitor, and uh, we've been working our way through, not every detail by any means, but we've got to the period now just after the incredible Mount Carmel experience where the prophets of Baal are completely defeated. Remember Israel, God's people, has been filled with the worship of Baal, driven by Jezebel, the queen who comes from the centre of Baal worship, Sidonia. Now, I just want to say, because I don't want to keep referring to this, two books I found really helpful in preparing this, particularly even today, one by Terry Virgo called God Knows Your Human. Now, I know it was published in America, so it's probably more easy to get it on Amazon or something, or second-hand copy, but I think the English version, which was similar, was uh, Weak People, Mighty God. But I think this particular one, God Knows You're Human, by Terry Virgo, I found really helpful. And also, there is a a series called Focus on the Bible, which uh, you can get in a Bible bookshop or quite easily, and the One Kings commentary by a chap called Dale Ralph Davis, on the wisdom and the folly, it's called One Kings. Focus on the Bible. I found that really helpful as a popular sort of study. Let's now get into it. Before we read the scripture, let's remind ourselves that we've seen Elijah do some remarkable things. We've seen him trust God in the Kerith Ravine when there was a drought and uh, he was fed with, by ravens bringing him food. We've seen him go to Zarephath, right at the heart of enemy territory, believe God and in a courage with his own faith, the widow of Zarephath, that God was going to provide miraculously, which he indeed did. We've seen him battle in prayer. We didn't study this in detail. Battle in prayer for the life of the widow's son after he dies and he sees a resurrection, which is pretty incredible. And in 1 Kings 18, we stand in awe as as, uh, Elijah shows incredible courage and faith to confront, first of all, Ahab and then the 450 prophets of Baal. God answers by prayer, uh, his prayer by fire, and then answers his prayer for rain, and rain comes. And it's been a momentous day as the clouds gather in the evening sky after three years of drought. And it's difficult to believe what the Bible says when it actually says that Elijah was a man just like us. You think, I don't think I'm quite like that. I I don't know about you, Steve, but I I think you probably are nearer to that. But I I haven't really feel that I'm quite in that category uh, of extraordinary faith and courage and all the rest of it. But in 1 Kings 19, we actually get a bit of a shock and we see the reality of the biblical insight about Elijah. So let's read from verse 1 of 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree. He sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. 
He looked round, and there by his head was a cake of bread, baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back to him a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat. The journey's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? We're going to look at that. And we're going to talk, first of all, we're going to ask three broad questions. The first one is, what happened to Elijah? I think uh, it's Ben might have to just follow me as best he can, because these slides will come a little, a little in rushes and things. But anyway, the first question is, what happened to Elijah? One minute he's standing confidently, not only dealing with Ahab, but dealing with the 450 prophets of Baal with great authority and rather ruthlessly. And the next, he's frightened and running, truly running scared as a result of this woman's threats. He is a man just like us. Basically, he crumples under pressure. That's what happens. Elijah crumples under pressure. He gets frightened by the evil queen Jezebel, and he becomes thoroughly depressed. So verse 4 is the sort of nadir. He prays, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And that is his prayer. This is the great man of prayer we were exhorted to look to in James 5. And he prays a prayer that is so unlike any other prayer he prays. It's so unworthy of him, you could say. But I'd honestly be surprised if many of you, if there aren't most of you that have sometime felt similar to Elijah. Now you may say I'm being a bit negative, but I'm drawing on my own experience. I've been a church leader for 30 years, been in church leadership for over 30 years really. I couldn't count the number of times I felt like giving up. They must be in hundreds over 30 years. And don't think it's all been at Hastings. Quite a few of them in here, Winchester, in the last few years. It's not that you're horrible. Don't take it personally. But just listen. The reality is, I have come to feel at least part of this. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I don't think I've been suicidal. But I have thought it would be easier to be dead. Because life is complicated. If you, you, you know, give up and you go... It might be easier... And I, I, I'm an English bloke, and I've, I've, that line of John Keats, I have been half in love with easeful death, has, has sort of made sense to me a few times. And I, I haven't got to the edge of that, but it's been there. And in case you think I'm oversensitive and odd, I've got a, a very... Very strong, tough friend who leads church. I would consider him like that. And he had a low spot at one time. And he was talking to Terry Virgo. And Terry said, as they were chatting, quite sensibly, not with irony, not with humour, not with anything other than a concern, Terry said, have you felt suicidal yet? To a leader who I admire, and you would know probably, said, have you felt suicidal yet? Why did Terry say that? Because he knows you can feel like that. It wasn't an exaggerated joke or an ironic comment because people do feel like that. In the Bible, three of the most righteous men in the Bible pray for God to kill them. Moses does it in Numbers 11. Job does it in Job 6. And of course, Elijah here in 1 Kings 19. They pray a prayer for God to take their life. 
So we're not talking about something that is unreal. God understands the frailty of the human form. God knows what it can be like for us. He doesn't answer any of those three men's prayers in the way they ask it. But they mean it when they ask it, and God knows what they're praying. The Bible's full of things like this, encouragements to not give in to fear. It's all through the Bible. You'll find it in the Old Testament, New Testament. Don't give in to fear. Now, you can take that as like some sort of command. Actually, it's the heart of God knowing that fear can easily fill our lives. And we can easily give in to it. Joshua's told endless times, don't be afraid, be strong. Now, it's actually because God understands that. He tells us to be careful about losing our faith or giving up our faith. And actually, quite a few times in the New Testament, it says, let's not give up. Let's not become weary of doing well and give up. Now, the reason the Bible says that is because God knows you can feel like giving up. wouldn't be there otherwise. If it was just an irrelevant comment, God wouldn't use it. But you can feel like giving up, like Elijah did. And so God encourages you about this real possibility, this real vulnerability. As I've said, the Bible is quite honest about its own heroes. We've talked about three of them. They're battling like we are with a sin-sick world, with demonic attack, with failures by God's people, which often uh, Moses, for example, particularly tussled with, and just endeavouring to walk with God with your own flesh and weakness and all the pressures around. Now, Elijah saw a lot of prayers answered, but God didn't answer this one. And that's a lesson as well, because you can sometimes get a simplistic view, and there are certain sections of Christianity that push this hard, that you get what you say. If you say it, you get it. If you don't say it, you don't get it. And it's a little oversimplified, but some of them it is put very bluntly. Actually, the whole thing of prayer is much more dynamic than that. It's communicating with God. And God really answers prayer. He doesn't just do what you say. He does look for faith. That's another story, another part of Elijah's story. But actually, God doesn't kill him. Because Elijah said, take my life. It's prayer. We're told it's a prayer. God doesn't do it. God knows best for us. God just shuts his ears to that prayer. And actually he's silent, but he's not going to be silent as we go through the rest of the chapter. He's going to come a totally different way to minister to Elijah, as we'll see in a few minutes. But what this tells me is you can be honest with God in prayer. You can pour your heart out to God in prayer. You'll find all the great heroes of the Bible do it. You'll find Abraham doing it. You'll find Moses doing it. And they sort of argue with God. Abraham says, look, I haven't got any kids. Perhaps I should do something. Perhaps my, my steward, Eliza, is going to... I mean, he's like sort of saying to God, well, you haven't done it yet, so maybe we'll do this. And then you get Moses, which we talked about, arguing things. You get it all through Scripture. Real, nitty-gritty, honest, crying out to God. And that's what Elijah's doing. You can be real with God. You can cry your heart out to him. You can pour out your emotions. He won't necessarily do what you ask because he knows better than you. Let's ask what went wrong. So here's my second question. Why did Elijah get depressed? Now, many commentators give Elijah a really hard time. And I wonder where they're coming from sometimes. As you read it, it's quite noticeable. But I don't think... God or we need to be overcritical of him. It is pretty clear that his eyes drifted away from God, because that's the core problem. And instead of looking to God, his, 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 his view, if you like, his vision is filled with Jezebel and her threats. That's what literally happens by the time we get to the first few verses of 1 Kings 19. 
So, yes, his eyes drifted away from God, but why? What happened? Well, I think the answers are very simple, and I want to analyse them just a little bit together. The first one I want to mention is discouragement. Discouragement. Elijah genuinely cared about the spiritual state of his nation. He genuinely cared about it. When he says things like he says in verse 10, if you've got your Bible open, I haven't got it on, this is not on a PowerPoint, but in verse 10 later on, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now, yes, that's full of self-pity. Yes, that is a very negative view because some quite good things have happened. He could have said, you answered by fire, you burnt up the sacrifice, you sent the rain. And he's all focusing on the negative, which, by the way, it is all too easy to do. But nevertheless, there's probably truth in what he says. that I have been zealous and I'm so upset that they are breaking your covenant. They're killing your prophets. They're pulling down your altars. Basically, he is really concerned about the honour of God's name. He probably set all his hopes on the confrontation on Mount Carmel. I think that's quite possibly what happened. That that he really thought this will turn the whole nation. And at first, it seemed to work. The people fell down and cried, the Lord, he is God. Then he prays for rain and it becomes very clear that God is the God of the drought and the rain. It's not Baal. Baal didn't answer by fire. Baal can't answer with rain. And in fact, three years earlier, he'd said clearly to Ahab, it will not rain until I say so. That wasn't arrogance. That was, I've asked God for judgment on the land. I've prayed and the rain will stop. Now he was able to prove, if you like, that it was God who was in charge. Not necessarily him. He prays and rain comes. It looks game over, doesn't it? That's game over. That's it. You can't, you can't question it. The fires come, now the rains come. God, the Lord, he is God. Game over. Oh, no, it's not. Not at all. Look at Ahab for a minute. You don't need to look in the Bible, but you can look quickly yourself, if you like. The last few verses of the chapter before, 18. Ahab doesn't change a bit. In all the drama on Mount Carmel, there is no evidence of Ahab repenting. We don't get Ahab apparently saying the Lord, he is God. We don't get Ahab saying, oh, God, what have I done to this nation? We don't get that at all. He's a bit subdued, which is not surprising, and then he trots off to have his dinner when Elijah sends him off to have his dinner. Ahab is the weak, fleshly, evil mixture that he's always been, it would seem. He seems untouched and unmoved by what's happened, unchanged. Now, actually, that can be very discouraging. I think that might have been the start of a check in Elijah's euphoria, if I can put it that way. But, you know, it's something very similar to what I'm sure you've experienced. Certainly I do at times. You can bring a friend or a relative to church. You can bring them along to gospel event. Maybe they get healed as a result of your prayers or somebody else's. And they seem to be unchanged, unmoved, unimpressed. Just nothing happens. And it's a mystery and it's a reality of life. And it's deeply, deeply true. You've only got to think of the most dramatic event in world history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You've got to think of this, the very centre of God's dealings with us, the most crucial, literally, point in history. 
Two men were right a metre or so away from it. Two thieves. One of them is humbled and saved. The other one is hardened and curses Jesus. That's a mystery, isn't it? That's utter mystery. Why was it one saw it? You're the Lord. Remember me when you come into paradise. The other one, you're the, you get me down as well. And it cursed and swore at Jesus. You think, why is that? I can't answer it, except to say that is what happens. That is true. It's not all down to you. I can give myself a really hard time. I think, why don't we see more people say, why don't we this, that? We need to be cleverer with our apologetics. We need to see more miracles, more signs and wonders. I'd love to see all of that true, but that isn't what it's all down to sometimes. See, two men were on Mount Carmel, Ahab and Elijah. Their whole responses are totally different to God breaking in. Ahab seems to be, all right, I'll go off and have a dinner then. That's literally what he does. Trots off home to have his dinner. He doesn't seem at all changed by it. But of course, it gets worse. Go on to 1 Kings 19, which we've looked at, and I think it's going to come up on the screen. Let's just read it. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. This is typical Ahab. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. That's Jezebel. So Ahab continues in his own feeble compromised way. The feeble husband he's always been, bleating to Jezebel about what Elijah's done. He's unwilling and unable to restrain her evil ways. Jezebel comes back absolutely stinging force. She is not cowed one bit. She is not wavered one bit. If anything, she's angrier. She's more committed to killing God's prophets. Her anger and hatred come through. The commentators would say the form of her word is a curse. This form is a sort of curse, where she, like an occult thing, where she says, may the gods deal with me, be ever so vivid. She has got almost an occult power, and she sort of commits herself, almost curses, if I don't kill you, I'm going to kill you. She isn't changing at all. In fact, it's getting worse, because now she knows where Elijah is. He's been three years below the radar. For three years, he's been below the radar. She has been, this lady has form. Look at 1 Kings 18.4. I think it's going up on the screen, Ben. This lady has form. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah hid some. That's there in 1 Kings. She kills prophets. Jezebel does it. And, and actually, Elijah's been below the radar, and suddenly he's right there. She's got a messenger went to him. I know where you are now. Tomorrow you're dead meat. And, and she, and he's like, what's this? Nothing's changed. This is the discouragement. It's great up on the mountain, but actually nothing that matters has changed. These people run the country. These people set up the bars. These are the power in the country, and they're not changed at all. So we see a few saved. We see some wonderful alphas, and our country goes down and down and down and gets worse and worse and worse. And you read all sorts of things. Even a paper yesterday, a dear old David Cameron, Cameron or whatever his name is, in his confusion saying, you know, that, uh, you know, if Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, if he was here, would have supported gay rights or something. I just read it yesterday. You think, oh my goodness. You know, so, so you know, the whole sort of system is just going, and you think, Nothing's really changing. Now, that can depress you. (laughs) 
unless you work your way through it. Discouragement can be the beginning of depression. Suddenly it hit Elijah that the things were not changing. Actually, they were really getting worse in some ways. Because he personally was now the threat. And this is the danger with discouragement. This is the big thing. It opens the door to other things. It opens the door to other things. And the other thing here is a wave of fear that just grabbed Elijah. It just said he was in fear. We haven't heard that word about Elijah before, but it says it here. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, it can happen in all sorts of ways that discouragement and disappointment opens the door up and in sweeps something else. Fear, lust, despair. I think people give in to lust often out of disappointment and discouragement. Give in to watch pornography on the television or on the internet. They're just fed up. Oh, you know, worked hard all weekend, nothing happened. Oh, you know. It's a sort of, I don't know if I can use this word without offending you, probably can't. It's a sort of sodded thing. You don't mind me saying that, I can't think of a nicer way of saying it. And it can happen to Christians. You just, oh, that's it, I blow it. And if God can't get anybody saved, I'm going to sit and watch a dirty film. And, and you have to be careful because the devil is working in that. He's got your door open with discouragement. Now he's going to push in something that really counts. Suicide, despair, lust, whatever. Real crippling fear. And it's, it's how we handle the discouragement, which is very normal. Disappointment does drain you. Disappointment drains you. It really does. You can think, putting everything into a major gospel outreach. You know, you really go for it. You, you, you really rack up to it. We have experienced this ourselves. And, and there's hardly a handful of unbelievers there, and about two get saved, you know, and they've been saved before. I always remember doing something at Hastings like that, and uh, we did a really big thing, and a, and a handful of people came forward. There were some very unusual characters in dear old Hastings, and one or two were quite well known. And I remember Don standing, probably with his hands in his pockets, he said, I can't remember the names of the people, so this is, the names have been changed, but we'll, we'll make up a name. What should we make up? I made a name up, right? And he's standing there, he says, oh, Willits got saved again. <laughs> Willits got saved again, because these two or three people came forward to be saved. Oh, crumbs. And all we got was the Willits again. We've had them about six times. You know, and, and it, so, you, sometimes it just feels very disappointing. And, and people are kind to you and say, oh, you preached really well. It was a great evening. You think, yeah, but it's not about a great evening. It's about seeing people saved. And uh, it's disappointing. Now, that's not depression, but that's an opening to all sorts of things, as I said. There can come discouragements in the family. A feeling of lack of appreciation from your marriage partner. I, I've never known such a thing, but of course others do. <laughs> Nor has Marion. <laughs> But we're, we're the exception that proves the rule. Uh, you know, I know we put a lot of you under pressure with our perfections. <laughs> but, no, so, uh, to be honest, you know, disappointment. You, you know, you think, what's the point? I didn't notice, you know, come home, just their own little world. You know, it's disappointing, it's frustrating. It can be more serious than that, can't it? Just real disappointment with our, our kids maybe going away from God or our parents who don't get saved. And in the end, you think, well, what's the point? And you can get bitter and hostile, and the devil's ready to come in with something else, which is what he'll do. Maybe you get disappointed with church. That's not unknown. With church leaders, with promises of revival, prophecies that never seem to happen. And it means you want to give up. You want to withdraw. You want to turn away from the fellowship and just get out into the desert under a broom tree and curl up and forget it all. All sorts of discouragements happen 
And they often happen when we're vulnerable and they happen in a context which I quickly want to go on to. I think there's a bit more to it than mere discouragement. It's a discouragement with exhaustion. He's tired. I think he's exhausted when this happens. There's a context here for Elijah. He had an extraordinary time, an extraordinary day on Mount Carmel. But actually that was the culmination of three years We've read, you know, he had brought a drought on the nation, not all down to him, but he'd, he'd, he'd worked with God on it, and he had seen miracles of provision, which must have been a bit nerve-wracking at times, whether it was the ravens or the widow, and it had been an extraordinary journey. Now, discouragement and depression can often come after high points. That's the funny thing. Even spiritual high points. After things that have gone really well, but they've actually been draining, physically and emotionally demanding. And I certainly think that would be a factor here. We need, and I want to say this with utter sincerity to everybody in the room, we are all very busy. Even you students. We are all very busy. Let me say it again. Modern life is lived at an unnaturally fast pace for every man and woman and child, practically. There are all sorts of things, and I could list them as long as you're armed, that were not true in not only your your grandparents' days, even your parents' days in some cases. Lots of things have struck me, even recently, little things. I won't get into them all, but things that would be liberating, perhaps, possibly, My mum would always been at home. My mum never went to work. If I came home from school, my mum was there. My dad was at work. My mum looked after the home. Now, I'm not saying, you could say, oh, I'll be sexist. I'll forget all that. I'm talking about hard work. I'm talking about many a woman today tries to do that and hold a proper job down. Now, why do they get tired and a bit depressed? But we we could look at 101 things. We could look at one thing. Do you know, for thousands of years... The fastest way you could communicate or travel was the speed of a galloping horse. For thousands of years, human beings like you, the fastest they could communicate would be a a letter given to a man riding on a galloping horse. And the fastest you'd get anywhere would be a galloping horse. But it's only roughly a hundred years since that's changed. And today, you and I, here in Winchester, we can say this with some degree of confidence, most of us in this room, if we had to, could fly to Australia. We'd either pull some savings in, or we might borrow a little bit from the bank, or some of us would have it sitting there anyway. Us sort of people in the West, ordinary people with jobs, can fly anywhere in the world pretty much at any time we need to. And we often choose to for holidays. So we go anywhere like that, and we can do it in a few hours, most of it. Many of you, as a routine, will travel 300 miles in a day in the car. We used to go to Hastings to visit my family. We we now try and do it Sunday evening after a prayer meeting, just have a little break and stay overnight. But for for a long time when we were here, we'd go Monday morning and we'd come back Monday evening. Now, Hastings is about 120 miles, so it's 240 miles. No, you do it, you drive there back. Many of you might even do that for work in an ordinary day. It's incredible. What about communication? Most of you have got about half a dozen ways you can communicate 24-7 with about scores of people. You can do it by mobile phone, text. You can do it by Facebook. You can do it by um, email. You can do it on the normal phone. You can probably do it by Skype. You can do it by fax, although that's old-fashioned, isn't it? I mean, and that's just you communicating with people instantly. 
24-7. And of course, all of this builds huge expectations. If I can communicate with you, I expect you to communicate back. There are enormous pressures in modern life, enormous things that drain us, the, the, the amount of things we try to sustain. And, and, and we're not allowed to live or work at the pace of walking or a galloping horse, are we? When Jesus, all the Bible, they're travelling at the pace of a donkey or walking. They had days to talk, days to think, days to pray. How long do you think it took to sort of walk several hundred miles? It took a long time, didn't it? Or go on a donkey. Now, I'm, not, I'm saying we need to realise it's not surprising we get pressurised. Do you understand what I mean? And we need to make sure that in our lives we almost, if we can, moderate that. I think Elijah got exhausted and then discouraged. And if you get those two together, especially with the third element, emotion, which will go up quickly, high emotion, you can crack up. You can go down the tube. You may not end up med- under medicine, but that doesn't matter. That's a minor thing. Medicine's no harm. You may just have a very difficult low time because these things make a sort of recipe of pressure. Emotions. Let's quickly look at it. He's tired. He's been doing loads. And now... His emotions, I think, were, were pretty drained. The day before, the 24 hours before, had been incredible. We will just quickly glance at the scriptures. This is where it really is quick, Ben. In 1 Kings 18, verses 17 to 18, just think of the emotions. When he saw Elijah, this is Ahab, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? This is the king. And he goes back to the king, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. That's pretty courageous, It's pretty on the edge emotionally, I'd say, to confront the king. Then the next one, 1 Kings 18, 21 and 22. Elijah went before the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. He must have shouted, he's shouting to hundreds of people. If Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing. Silence. Perhaps sullen, even threatening silence. Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. God's going to answer my prayers. I mean, it takes guts. The people silent. It takes emotion, too. 1 Kings 18, 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Now, this may not have been a nice emotion, but it's perfectly understandable. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping. He must be awakened. I mean, he's, he's really motoring, isn't he? I can feel with him. Don't you feel it? It's only, come on, get your God then. All 450 of you. There's only one of me. Come on, where's your God? Easy to imagine. Quite draining though. Then he prays. Then it's his turn. 1 Kings 18.37 Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. I bet you he didn't pray that in a calm, sort of vicarish voice as though he was doing a little chant in Winchester Cathedral. I bet you he didn't pray like that. I mean, it's me or them. God, turn up! <laughs> and then what about 1 Kings 18.40? This is pretty grim stuff, but Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down. Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. This guy is on a high. We've got some things here that may not be good. There's some anger and there's some pride creeping in, I would suggest. But they're very real and natural emotions. It's very hard for us to get angry and not sin. God is able to love the sinner and hate the sin. It's much easier to hate both. I know I get into that. You know, I hate both. I can find myself getting angry about the state of the nation or sin. And, and I think I'm actually getting angry with people. 
And I think Elijah very much got into that. It's very easy to happen. It's not easy to think we're... It, well, sorry, it is easy to think we're in righteous indignation when in actual fact we're probably in a judgmental spirit and inventing our own personal frustrations. And, and it's easy to happen. And it's not a healthy way to go, necessarily. If it isn't. And then, of course, there's pride. Did Elijah become proud? After three years of being a nobody, he was suddenly the centre of the whole nation's attention. That's quite a lot to handle. And it was exciting. Stuff happened. As I said, God turned up. The fires, the rain, the executions. I wonder if he subtly moved from being God-conscious to being self-conscious. And that is a big change. That's really what I think the nub of it is. Because when Jezebel threatens him, he's just thinking of himself. How's he got there? He's got to a point, I don't think he's got arrogant, but he's got to a point where he's forgotten this is all about God. And maybe it's a sort of mixture Look at, look at one more. There's one more there, Ben. Sorry, put up. 1 Kings 18, verse 46. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. I mean, he can do anything. You know, where God is with him, we're winning them all. We've, you know, we can, with God's on my side, anything can happen. I'm invincible. I can run faster than a chariot. Now, he doesn't say all that, but I mean, he must be. He's a man just like us. He must have been thinking, this is it. Nothing is going to go wrong. Nothing can stop us. Whack. Goes straight in to the brick wall of Jezebel's hatred. And that makes it all the worse because he's thinking what God's doing, how God's using him. We must be careful about pride. It is one of the most subtle sins. Pride comes before a fall is a truism, really. It almost inevitably leads to a crash because you're relying on yourself. You're thinking, I'm doing this. This is really happening for me. This is my doing. And it isn't. <laughs> God is your provider. God is your Lord and your, your, ha- your rock, your, your guide. Whatever words you want to look. I'm talking to you as believers. It's all about him. You, anything you have, you only have from his hand. It's so easy to forget that. And I think, to some extent, Elijah must have forgotten that. And it's so easy to think you're responsible for your own success. And I think we've got the recipe then for his depression, his very low, low mood. He's hit discouragement in a context of being tired and emotionally hyped, focused on himself, focused on what he's done. And suddenly, fear of Jezebel takes over from faith in God. God's not changed one little bit. What has changed? It's something in Elijah's eyes and heart and spirit. And it happens for all of us. And we have to see the way back, which we're going to briefly see, uh, is going to be the same for us. Now actually we're going to move on to this last bit to look quickly at what was God's response to Elijah's depression. But really... Steve will pick this up even more next week because we're working together on it. He's going to pick up much more what happened at Mount Horeb. So I just want to flag up a couple of things from this question. What was God's response to Elijah's depression? I'd like you to listen to what I think is a wonderful quote from Terry Virgo. So please try and listen to it. Don't switch off. It's not a complicated quote, but I think it's a great insight. Terry writes this in his comment on this. If God were like us... Elijah would probably have been fired 
But that is not God's style. When Elijah ran out of gas, he ran ran straight into grace. Now, I think that's a good line. When Elijah ran out of gas, he ran straight into grace. And grace never gives up, never ignores, never backs off. Whenever wounded people run into grace, they run into the arms of God who knows exactly what to do. Amen? And some of you need to notice what God does here because you've got a wrong idea of God. And so for a few moments, the last five minutes or so, don't even think about, you know, if we have to go a few minutes over for our response time, that's fine. I want you to notice what God is like. For the first time, let me point out to you, Elijah is actually in a sort of rebellious state, not perhaps directly. For example, he is now travelling with no direction from God. In verses 3 and 4, he leaves to run off into the desert. God didn't tell him to do that. Every other time up to this, he's only moved when God's told him. That's gone out the window. In verse 3, he leaves his one companion, his servant. He doesn't even want this servant with him. And he goes into the desert and sits under the tree. He completely withdraws. Completely. I bet you some of you know what that means. Totally withdraws. He doesn't want anybody with him. He doesn't want to be anywhere. He doesn't really want to be with God, though he prays that despairing prayer. Now, what was God's answer? Two very simple things. First of all, rest and refreshment. It's amazing. Rest and refreshment, yes. After that despairing, self-pitying prayer that we have in verse 4, you don't find God telling him off. You don't find God beating him up. You don't find God giving him a lecture on how to handle his fear, do you? All of which can happen all too easily. He doesn't happen. God lets him sleep and then he feeds him. Psalm 23, which I think is going to flick up, reminds us what our God is like. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That's our Lord. That's our God. He's not a cruel tyrant. He's not a vicious father, a sort of twisted view of authority. He is our shepherd caring for us and leading us besides quiet waters and restoring our soul. Terry writes again, I can't better his words, let's give him credit. Listen to this. So often we can be tempted to think that relating to God is all spiritual gymnastics. A frenzy of praying, fasting and witnessing. But that's not true. We must get to know the God who lets us lie down and gives us sleep. That's wisdom from Terry there. You need to hear it. God is not all about spiritual gymnastics. Praying, fasting and witnessing. That's not how he is. He can save people when he wants to. He will use you. It's a privilege. But he also knows your frailty, what you need. We need to beware of super spirituality that looks exclusively for supernatural answers to our low moods or our anger and can ignore the human side. You will get very niggly if you are tired and have not had much to eat. I speak from experience. Marion's experience of me is even worse. She says, you are very waspy. I think you better sit down and have something to eat. Waspy is her word for me. Now that's very minor. 
And I actually think some of us live in a culture which is quite macho about we don't have much sleep and we don't need to eat. We don't have meals, we just keep going. Well, stupid you. And if the world needs you to do that, to keep going, it's not much of a world. If God needs you to do that, to keep going, he's a bit feeble. I think we sometimes need to understand we need sleep and we need food, proper food at proper time. But here is something, I must say it, because it's so beautiful about God, I want you to notice it. It's very important. If you want to understand grace, this is a picture to get your sort of imagination. Hear it. When Elijah was at the centre of God's will in the Kerith Ravine, he was fed with scraps of food by ravens. But when he ran for his life, was dejected and disobedient, God commissioned an angel to make him a cooked meal. How's that for grace? That is our God. And some of you don't believe it. You don't believe it. You believe the devil's lies, that when you fail, you're going to suffer for it. That if something's going wrong, you are suffering for blowing it somewhere and missing it. And the devil whispers, God won't have anything to do with you now. You're on your own. You didn't even bother to pray. That's utter lies. Look at this. That's lies from the pit. When Elijah is disobedient and depressed, God sends an angel with a cooked meal. He doesn't get a couple of scraps from a raven. God is a God of grace. A God of mercy. God doesn't keep us at arm's length when we fail. Wake up and read your Bible. What about Jesus with Peter? Peter denied him. Cursed and swore. I don't know him. Who initiated the restoration? Jesus did. He met him on the beach. He cooked him a breakfast. He talked to him. And he rebuilt the relationship. Jesus initiated it. He said, I'll wait until Peter comes looking for me. Jesus went looking for him. And notice the, hu- the reality of understanding human frailty. Cooked him a breakfast, just like Elijah. Fed him, pre- preserved him, looked after him, and then began to teach him, which is what's going to happen to Elijah next week, you'll see it, at Horeb. Began to restore him. But first of all, just cared for him. And once he'd slept and eaten... God didn't then say now of the lecture on how to handle fear. No. 40 days of travel. Now, I want to make a clear point here as we come to the end because we want to understand what this journey was. 40 days of travel to Horeb. I've got the title Back to Basics. This is the last point, but it's a very, very important one. Don't lose any attention because it's, if you miss this, you miss the main point of this week, really, because you've got more to come next week. This journey to Horeb is often criticised by commentators and who, who write on the Bible. It's very common to give Elijah a hard time and to say that Elijah was rebellious, he shouldn't have been there. Of course, it's easy to say it because of the verse 9. When he went into a cave, he spent the night there, the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, that's easy to make what I think is a false Uh, deduction from that. You'll see what I mean. I'm going to take a moment to explain it. I'm with others who have a totally different view. First of all, the angel prepared a meal for him and told him there was a journey coming. So I don't think God was at all phased by this journey. Secondly, it's 40 days and 40 nights, which in the Bible is nothing to do with rebellion. It's everything to do with the testing and preparing of God's servants. Happens with Moses, happens with Jesus. It's an honourable sort of motif. The 40 days and 40 nights. 
Thirdly, he is not wandering aimlessly in the desert. He's not running for his life. He is systematically heading for somewhere. Where's he going? Horeb. What's Horeb? The mountain of God. What's that mean? It means a lot. The mountain of God is the place where God first spoke to Moses. It's the place where the old covenant was given. It's where it all began. It's where Israel began. It's a precious place. It's the fundamental place, the basic place for any faith-filled Israelite. It's where the foundations were laid in. What's your Mount Horeb? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what your Mount Horeb is. It's Jesus. It's where your covenant was cut. It's where your faith is focused. It's where it all begins for you, with Jesus. And Elijah is taken right back to Horeb. Right back to where the people of God first met God. And and where Moses had the covenant given to him. And he goes right back there. And I tell you, if you're disillusioned and depressed, even like we all get, let alone severely so, ultimately you've somewhere got to get back to Jesus. You've got to consider him. It says that in Hebrews. Lest you grow weary and give up. Consider him. It is all about him. You've got to get back to Jesus. You've got to look at Jesus. You've got to look at the cross. Get saved again. Now, I don't think you can lose your salvation, but it's as simple as that. You need to think, why did I start on this journey? What do I really believe? Do I believe it's a mindless, chaotic world with no no plan, no maker, no designer? Of course I don't. When you strip it down, that would be nonsense. Do, what do, if, if there is a God, what does it make sense that he knows us, he relates to us, he loves us? But what are we like? Well, we're sinners. I'm a sinner. I can't even get myself right, let alone anybody else. Then the gospel makes sense. Yes, the grace of God opens my eyes. Get back to the basics. It makes sense. When you're right down the tube, right out in the desert under the broom tree, you need to come back to the mountain of God. You need to come back to where the covenant comes from, to where God started it all. Everything you're in, it started there. And I do want to say something about this phrase, because I think it's been misunderstood. What are you doing here, Elijah? It depends on the tone. I mean, if it's the tone of a nasty, critical parent, critical, rebuke, irritable, what are you doing here? You should be up with Jezebel kicking her teeth in. No, that's not it. God wanted him at Horeb. God's going to meet him at Horeb. The tone is, is, I don't know how to describe it, I think it's, it's gentle and challenging. It's measured, but it's challenging. He's calling Elijah to be open, to dialogue with him. God's saying, I want to talk to you here on here at Horeb. I want to talk to you. What are you doing here? Can I just say, I don't think I'm using imagination, it's more like this. What are you doing here at Moses' place? What are you doing here at the Covenant Mountain? What does it mean to you, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? And you know, you come to the cross and you stand before the cross and kneel before the cross and you'll hear the same voice. What are you doing here? What's this mean to you? It's God coaxing him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Come on, Elijah. You're on Horeb, mountain of God. I've left you alone for 40 days as you walked. You knew where you were going. I wanted you here. Now, let's talk. We're back. You've got to remember, I am the God who gave the covenant. I am your God. And we're going to see more about what he learned there.